1: Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For almost a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. This week, I'm talking with Soleil Ho and Justin Phillips, the co-hosts of the Extra Spicy podcast for the San Francisco Chronicle, where Soleil is also the restaurant critic and Justin writes a column about race and inequality in the Bay Area. We talked about so much from the genius cooking tricks that they have brought home from their work covering restaurants to oddities like the one and hopefully only rat bar. Yes, rat bar. A quick warning that there is also a bit of profanity in this episode, as well as some discussion of the weightier issue of abuse in the restaurant industry in the second half of the episode. But first, here are Soleil and Justin on the most genius things that they have eaten lately.
0: Ooh, that's a good question. That is a good question. Uh,
2: <laughs> um, actually, you know, I think for me, it was a, well, does a it, does it drink count? Can I talk about that? Yeah, Cool. I went to this restaurant called Avery in San Francisco and had the non-alcoholic drink pairing. And one of the first beverages that they made for us consisted of, I want to say, ooh, what was it? It was so good. It was like sauerkraut juice. um and it was just like this really smoky salty beverage um with i think i think a little bit of like egg foam on top as well and they paired it with iberico ham and it just Mm. like made so much sense you know Mm. ham sauerkraut pork um and i was so stunned. Often I think non-alcoholic drink pairings are kind of a uh, whatever, like sort of a an afterthought at restaurants, but this one was truly genius, I thought. And not really sweet
1: at all, just kind of tangy, salty.
2: Yeah, no, there was just a little bit of sugar just to, you know, make it palatable, but um and not a salt bomb and not just tasting like the juice from the inside of a handbag, but it was <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it was well balanced. <laughs> Don't tell me you haven't tried to do that.
0: I mean, that's why I laughed because that's, that's relatable content right there. <laughs>
2: to, dr-
1: to drink the ham bag juice.
0: We are all ham bag juice drinkers. Let's not deny it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't, uh, as for me, I think, and Soleil and I used to talk about this like a lot in the beginning of the pandemic, which was like navigating emotions, um, being, you know, kind of like freaked out in a way that you weren't used to. And so I know a lot of our coverage, um, especially in print, was around like the idea of comfort foods or being able to make something that could put you at peace a little bit. And so like in the beginning for me, it was like going back to dishes that I grew up. So I grew up in Louisiana. So it's like cooking, you know, Louisiana food and... I went through this whole journey of like uh, trying to make something like a a, like a quality pot of red beans and rice that like my dad used to make. And in this time, there's also a um, there was also some coverage we did, at least I did, for a um, Creole restaurant uh, in Oakland where, you know, I know the chef. And she launched, like, a YouTube channel where she would, like, you know, do recipes for these dishes and, like, red beans and rice. And at one point, she and I connected, and I was like, you know, how does yours turn out, like, in this really great way? And she talked to me about... Um, how whenever she's cooking, she always ends up using more salt and more fat than people would expect. So I was like, oh, okay. So I would dabble with what my dad did and also increase like the amount of like pork fat that I would use and salt that I would use. Mm-hmm. And it was this like kind of fun experimentation with like how quickly, um, I could raise my own blood pressure <laughs> in my kitchen.
1: <laughs> Do you feel like you, you reached your peak? No. The beans?
0: You know, I, I don't think so. I feel like I, I, I don't intend to, or maybe I don't notice, but I self-sabotage. Like, if I can ever recreate, you know, what my parents make, then it makes me feel like, you know, are going to be wild to say. I'm a grown-ass adult, but it's going to make it seem like I need them less in a way. Like, I like the mm-hmm. idea that I can't make exactly what my dad would make. That makes, like, mm-hmm. going to see him and be able to eat dinner with him uh, special. You know, so mm-hmm. maybe I'll never make one that that's right on point, but I'll make a good version for myself. though.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder, too, about um, just all of the intangible things, uh, you know, mental, emotional or even just like the environment, the pot, the like those particular ingredients that, have, you know, are probably hanging out in your parents' mm-hmm. cabinets, like maybe you never Maybe you don't need to worry about it because you never will just inherently um, be able to exactly recreate it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that I did miss from my parents' cabinets was uh, consistently pulling out containers of bay leaves and seeing that they were dry and being like, Uh. why do y'all keep these?
1: (laughs) (laughs) From like 95? Exactly.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> the dates, the expiration dates rubbed off like why y'all still got this
1: <laughs> just add more i mean <laughs> yeah. i don't know what they do but the, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's probably it. what i would do
0: yeah
1: yeah i um my my grandmother's biscuits and gravy i i spent a lot of time when she was still alive trying to document trying to talk to her trying to watch her and it never comes out the same um so i i just i i think i just have to believe that there's just something in there that that like will be in our memories, but we, you know, and we can get close, but we'll never really hit it.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah. And Soleil, I don't don't know what you think about this, but I always think of, like, things that we ate when we were kids. How? Like, I especially miss that, too, because our palates were, you know, we took everything to the extreme. If something was kind of sweet, it was crazy sweet to us. If it was sour, Mm -hmm. it was extremely sour. And you know, if you eat something as a kid, like when you recreate it, you're going to lean into those notes that were extreme when you were a child, like especially if it's like cake or a pie or something that your grandparents used to make, like your version might be crazy sweet, because that's what you remember as a kid, and it might not have been the case, so I kind of, yeah, I kind of miss that, like, I don't know, things just seem... Oh my God, now I'm just talking about getting older. Things were more enjoyable (laughs) when we were younger. (laughs) Uh,
2: Well, I don't know. For me, it was the opposite. Really? Things were worse when I was younger because I was so picky. I was so, I was such a brat and I didn't like black pepper. I didn't like vegetables. (laughs) I didn't like anything. And so everything I ate was really bland.
0: Oh, interesting. How
2: did that and when did that change? I think it changed with, oh my gosh one time an aunt brought me a a carton of sour cream and onion pringles whoa (laughs) (laughs) and I really loved them and then she was like guess what it's onion I was like and then that just like opened up everything for me
1: so then after that you were more open to trying all kinds of new stuff
2: I think so and um I think it was just a matter of realizing that not all you know, onions taste the same, for instance, um, that black pepper had a use, that there were sorts of, there was safety outside of the zones that I had already determined. Mm-hmm. How old were you then? Oh my gosh. I want to say seven. Mm. Yeah. It was a lot of dark years before then. <laughs> 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 well, you made up for lost time. I think so. I mean, you know, your picky kid could be- become a food critic. Yeah.
0: Just make sure they try some uh, sour cream and onion Pringles, was it?
2: <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. I mean, still, like, they taste like there's nothing wrong in the world oh and God. everyone is happy, mm-hmm. you know? I love that. Like, onion powder, garlic powder, MSG, mm-hmm. like, all of those things work in tandem to to make something amazing. Were you picky, Justin?
0: Nah, nah, I wasn't. I wasn't at all. I, uh, I don't know. I, maybe this was, like, mind tricks that my parents would play, but they they could make something and I wouldn't know it was bad or flavorless or anything because they would be so energetic about it, right? Like I think it was their way of like getting us to eat whatever they made. Cause it was always on some like, oh you guys are gonna love this, you're gonna love this. And even if you weren't sure, you'd be like, okay, I'm supposed to love it. So it's good. So I think they did that for a lot of foods. And um and yeah, nah, I was just a I was a snacky kid. I was down for um I was down for whatever. I would eat I honestly I would eat what my dad ate, and my dad mm-hmm. ate everything. So
2: Oh, you know what's funny? I realized too that the way Vietnamese people eat at home is so different because we don't really have set dishes. Ah. Um it's usually like, do you want like pho, for instance, right? It's customizable. Mm-hmm. Like, do you want this? Do you want that? Do you want some onions? Do you want cilantro? And you know, as a kid, you just want to say no, 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 <laughs> no. I just want the, the noodles and the broth. Yeah. Um and, like, there's some satisfaction in kind of knowing that your mom or your aunt or, or your uncle or whatever knows what you want, mm-hmm. too. Mm. Like, that's my order. I'm a regular at Grandma's Kitchen, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, like, you know, you have all the little dishes, the soup and the and, like, meaty dishes, vegetable dishes, and rice for, like, a normal meal. And you just pick and choose what you want um, it's not like all in a pile for instance. So it's, I think it's a lot easier to be picky for, for that sort of format.
0: That's a, That's super interesting. Also that like, uh, I feel like that's a good, that's good for a kid to learn that they're, you know, even if it's like food choices, but their choices are respected in some way. Like as a kid, you pick up on that. Like if you have uh family members that understand what your preferences are, especially eating in that kind of format, it's like you're, Feelings, I guess, are kind of validated. Like that—that that feels like a supportive kind of space. My family was more was like, you know, this pot's gonna be really good, so eat out that pot. <laughs> but I don't like this thing. Well, <laughs> then you kind of just <laughs> roll with it. But oh, that's uh, cute. That's so cute. Yeah. I mean, I feel like yeah. I, I like I like both of these, you know, culinary origin stories. I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so different, and yet, like you—you you both ended up loving and appreciating all kinds of food. So, I mean, I guess that, I mean, I have a, I have a two year old daughter and I of course obsess about like trying to get her to enjoy as much food as quickly as possible. And, and she resists me at many turns. Um, like (laughs) I was a picky kid. Like it was, it was our destiny. I think that, um, that I would be thinking about this stuff a lot, but it's always comforting to hear that like you can start out super picky and still, you know, come to appreciate and love and cook a range of foods you can start out loving all foods and just keep doing it like that I feel like a lot of parents could probably use that
2: pep talk and and just like wait it out a little bit
0: Mm.
2: (laughs) yeah I mean we're both speaking as people without kids but we certainly were kids right yeah Yeah. (laughs) you know take what we say with
1: grains of salt right
0: right we don't we don't (laughs) we don't know anything don't listen to us
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is just helpful to remember like everyone has done this everyone has has grown up and like learns to eat to some extent, you know, and you you're both a testament to that, just to go back to the sauerkraut juice thing, and by the way i I can neither confirm nor deny drinking ham packaged water <laughs> but <laughs> you know since since you both to varying degrees eat out a lot for work or or justin in your case, it maybe more in your previous version of your role, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: how often do you see things at restaurants that you then take home and and change the way you cook at home?
0: That's
2: a good mm. question. I don't cook at home though. So I'm, I feel disqualified so like, from the question. Yeah, was... uh, unfortunately, I'm always, well, not unfortunately, but like unfortunately for the <laughs> context of this particular question, I do not, uh, I don't get to cook too much. I eat out almost six to seven days a week. Um, and honestly, when I cook for myself, it's like granola. And yogurt, and like maybe an egg. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe I'll smoke some fish in the back. But I've actually worked as a restaurant chef for about a decade before I had this job, and so yeah, I mean irrevocably, right? My mm-hmm. style of cooking at home is informed by restaurant work. I'm just more efficient. So I realize too, like when I cook with groups, like with family, I I mm-hmm. cannot, I can't do it, I can't gel because they're also. Um, they're home cooks. I think I'm the only one who's ever worked in a restaurant kitchen. And so (laughs) it it can be chaotic. Mm -hmm. And I try to, I become a little dictator, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) Um, what are the, like, I don't know if this is just completely infused into everything you do in the kitchen, but like, are there any particular things that come to mind that you, once you saw them and incorporated them into your work in the restaurant kitchen, that was how you're going to do it from here on out at home too?
2: Ooh, um, (laughs) I'm trying to think of of a sexier answer than, like, all my serve safe training um, (laughs) for, like, safety measures in the fridge. Um, I mean, certainly, like, for instance, if I have a bunch of herbs in my fridge. One of my early jobs when I was working garmaje at a restaurant, which is like salads, desserts, like that sort of thing, was herb maintenance. And so I would go into the walk-in and I would pull out the like, yucky herbs and just, and they were all in like sort of uh, containers of water just to keep them alive. And so that's how I store my herbs as a civilian, like normal human too now. Um, I, I, just, I just pick them over every day just to make sure the wilty ones are out. So um, they don't like Bring down the rest of them, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is based in science. It's just like, it's a bummer to see mushy herbs. And so, um, maintaining that is a big part of my fridge hygiene. Mm-hmm. And um,
1: Justin, how about you in terms of like incorporating stuff you see in the restaurant world into your home cooking?
0: There's this place in uh, on de Visadero in San Francisco called Que Fico that opened and it was like this rustic. Italian hotspot that everybody was going to and had super long lines when it first opened. But, um, before the place opened, like I, I wrote about it a lot and talked to the chef a lot. And there was like a day where, you know, we made like, pasta dough together. The The chef would get very granular about like the specifics of how the flour, how the corn was milled for the flour and things like that. And what the weather conditions were, you know, it was created in Northern California and just all these like small details. And I never understood how much, um, how like that kind of specificity could end up playing into the flavor. I just thought it was always like, before I started covering restaurants out here, I just thought that was just like stuff, chef said, that can't possibly mean (laughs) anything, you know? And I kind of figured out along the way that, yeah, like it, it does make a difference. Like, you know, if you're checking the pH balance of like the water that you're using or something or how you have that flour stored, like all of that does make a difference in like that final bite. And so I think as I explored restaurants, I was just for like Italian places, but there's a lot of cuisine, people who took it very serious. I took away like a healthy respect for uh for what makes great food like people can care deeply and and if they do it in the right way it, it comes out
1: did that change um how you pro- approached anything in particular at home
0: yeah no I would be way more careful with how I microwave tot pockets frozen <laughs> burritos um I was very very meticulous about that I was mm-hmm. aware how the in the centers might be yes. frozen blocks of ice and the edges were hot yes. You know, so like I, I'm not gonna say that I took everything away, but I definitely became, uh, you know, better at using my wife, my microwave for sure.
1: Yes, you incorporated maybe a flip to get the real even oh, yeah. cooking.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. You know, I would. Uh, <laughs> definitely took away some tricks of the trade, and uh, and it shows in my kitchen.
1: <laughs> hey, it's Kristen. If you're enjoying this chat with Soleil and Justin as much as I did, head over to the Genius Recipe Tapes and hit subscribe so you don't miss out on other stories like this one, like our recent story with Mark Matsumoto, founder of NoRecipes.com, about the early days of food blogging, the next big thing in climate-conscious farming, and Mark's one ingredient trick that has forever changed the way that I season salmon and pretty much everything else. In the second half of this episode, we get to hear more from Soleil and Justin, on the food news that is burning them up the most right now and also
3: wrap bar meet you back here for that
1: With the focus of your podcast, Extra Spicy, what is the, and I know this is changing gears, um, but what is the spiciest thing that has happened in food news lately that you have either recently talked about on an Extra Spicy episode, or (laughs) maybe you've been really wanting to talk about and haven't yet? (laughs)
2: Justin, do you have one in mind?
0: Oh, man.
2: (laughs) There's just so much.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a ton. Um, shit, I don't even know how to go into this. Once again, we have a... Uh, there's another toxic workplace that was exposed on the West Coast that had a chef that was leading it. Should we just dive into the details or, could, or, or am I talking uh, like in general terms for this? I
2: mean, it's all reported. It's all in the
0: news. Okay, so you got Eduardo Jordan uh, out there in Seattle and had, you know, um, was it 15? I mean, I, I, I remember saying it. it's like more than two dozen, uh, you know, women and, uh, former employees and employees who've spoken about the toxic workplace that he created, how he like assaulted women and, uh, or how he inappropriately touched women and just, you know, it's, it's, pretty damn frustrating, right? Because, like, I, I didn't know. Um, I didn't, I'm i not familiar with, like, Seattle restaurants and Seattle food scene, but apparently this is one of those things that was, like, one of the worst-kept secrets. And it's just, like, damn frustrating that, you know, we've spent years now trying to um, expose businesses that are run by these problematic figures and the hurt and harm that they cause. And you know it feels like we have these moments where everyone's like yeah let's get them and then we have another story comes out come out it's like it shows you how deeply rooted mm-hmm. uh some of these issues are and like you know how hard it is for people to speak out and it's just like ooh we it's 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 frustrating and it makes you angry to see it it makes you feel for the people that had to experience it and feel for the people who couldn't speak out about it and it's like you know Eduardo was just being, like, celebrated. Hell, I, wrote, I wrote, included him in a story where I was talking about, um, you know, after the James Beard Awards, you know, black uh, culinary talent had cleaned up then. That was
2: in 2018, and,
0: uh, right? That was in 2018, yeah. And I had, uh, you know, like, essentially placed a little crown on Eduardo. Like, look at the, look at the future, and this is what we're doing. Mm. And it's like, man, you know, people were talking about what he was doing then. And it's like... Come on man like I I feel I saw this on Twitter and I kind of <laughs> and I low key agree with it not even like low key I agree with it but it's like at some point you know men you need to step aside stop stop running kitchens y'all need to move somewhere else and regroup and and figure your shit out because like we've been constantly covering this problem and it seems like a lot of men in this industry just aren't getting it and um yeah it's just it's frustrating it's frustrating so
2: yeah Yeah, that's not like funny spicy, but it definitely is red hot. Yeah, sorry. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Sorry about that. It was just it was something that was just off my mind. My fault. Yeah.
2: No, it's interesting, too, because like for a podcast, right, we are given the sort of latitude to do coverage that doesn't quite fit into the newspaper format. And yeah, we can talk a bit more topically about the things that happen. And one of the recurring conversations that we have on Extra Spicy is about the media, and kind of the media's role in in perpetuating the idea of the chef. Um, and I think that, to me, is the it speaks to the the, the question mm-hmm. that Justin had of just like why does this keep happening, right? Like how every time it's like whack a mole, mm-hmm. um, and it's because the structure, like the central structure of a media that demands heroes, is still intact. Um, Mm. you know, we fall for it. We're complicit. You know, you put the crown on Eduardo Jordan's head and I certainly put the crown on other people's heads. Um, and we need to stop. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, it's hard to stop though. It's like an addiction.
0: It, it, yeah, that that's 100% it. And I think, I think that's something different with, with and I too, because like in doing this podcast and I, and I'm sure, Soleil, you've probably were this way before, but I, I only, I, I became this way over the last couple of years, but being more introspective of you know, especially when it comes to those moments of calling things out and being like, Why is this happening? And being like, Oh shit, I have a I have a role in this. Like I'm I'm complicit and how? And you're absolutely right. Like, you know, it, it's some it's this the machine that is food journalism definitely seeks out these like like Soleil said, these hero figures. And as much as we talk about it and, you know, show how <laughs> it can be problematic and try to condemn it, it can Continues to happen,
1: and it's so interesting to think about what we in the media can be doing differently. Like, what would that look like would Would that mean focusing on the restaurant as a whole rather than the chef figure? Would that mean um, vetting the the chefs that we're featuring more heavily? Um, Like, what ways could that actually play out? And also, maybe for our listeners and our readers, what are like are there ways that they can This information that's not necessarily coming from us too, or or like have an extra dose of skepticism around it.
2: Oh my gosh! I mean, that's a huge question. There's so much. What I can say is that I know so many colleagues across newsrooms have are holding stories that they can't publish because nobody wants to come out and talk about it. Right, and that's why things kind of stay at the level of whisper network. And that's the cool thing about alt media too. And that's also why people take to Instagram for accusations because they don't need to go through all of that ridiculousness um, that, you know, yes, for legal reasons, newsrooms have to hold themselves accountable to, you know, vetting sources and all of that. Um, but it's an, it's not tenable for, for cases like this, right, where like the person in power You know, if you call them out, like, what do you get out of it, actually? Like, what do you get in a justice system that is so geared in favor of abusers and and people who do the sort of gray area stuff that Jordan did in the past? Um, Maybe he still does. I don't know. But I think the thing that is really frustrating, too, is, like, the nature of the NDA, right? As long as, like, people are held to these contracts that say they cannot Mm -hmm. talk badly or disparage their workplaces after they leave, then there's a lot that falls under those umbrellas, right? Um, I think that part muzzles a ton of people in the restaurant industry in particular, but also just broadly. Um, Another thing is, of course, like just the economic incentives to stay quiet are just so powerful. I just, yeah, I mean, those are root causes Mm -hmm. that Me Too did not fix and Mm -hmm. it had no power to fix. So
1: do you see any... I mean, there's no silver bullet, but do you see any solutions that could be promising? Not presently. Yeah.
2: I mean, (laughs) there's certainly like pie in the sky sort of solutions that I hope do make it um, into reality. Like universal basic income, for instance, would make things a lot more comfortable for people who, you know, who have to weigh the risks of leaving a job because they are being harassed, right, or abused by their by their boss or whatever versus you know like pursuing their own health because there are cases in that story right where someone for instance went on a business trip with Jordan and he mistakenly air quotes booked a single room with one bed and that that cook could not afford to buy her own hotel room so she just had to get in bed with him um and he knew that and like these these folks like him like know that their victims are like economically precarious right and if we remove that precarity I think that would help so many people
0: mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm.
1: Ooh, so a lot needs to change <laughs>
2: yeah and I'm yeah. sorry like this isn't necessarily about the podcast it's just stuff that like Justin and I talk about all the time <laughs> but like we do use the podcast I think as an opportunity to talk about this sort of systemic stuff, yes. even in like a funny or like, you know, whatever brusque way, um, it's a good outlet for that. Mm-hmm.
0: It's, th- yeah, it's, it's therapeutic. I th- I think, you know, it's great that people listen to it. Um, and, you know, from what we can tell, there are people that like it out there, but personally, personally, like, you know, a lot of times, even before we're recording or when we record or stuff that doesn't make it into an episode, like, talking to Soleil about a lot of issues is is really, I, you know, us bouncing stuff off each other, I think. I don't want to speak for Soleil, but I'm assuming it's therapeutic for her as well. And um, and it definitely is for me. Uh, but also, <laughs> also it, Soleil, should we think, is there anything that's like, you know lighter and spicy that uh because i kind of i don't know if i derailed our our direction there (laughs) a minute ago but like what was something that you were thinking of because i that eduardo stuff was just on the the tip of my tongue but what was something you were thinking of
2: oh gosh i mean i think we got a lot of mileage out of rat bar like
0: (laughs) oh yeah the rat bar which
2: you know california or yeah is opening up now in the bay area certainly like most of the restrictions are gone and I wonder if Rat Bar is coming back. I hope it doesn't.
0: <laughs> let's, let's expand on Rat yes, Bar. Yes. Yes. All right. That's it. Right. Thanks for having us. All right. So let's get out of here. We're just going to say, are going to save Rat Bar and bounce. Um, yeah. So there was a, there was a bar. Uh, it was like a, I guess it's like a, it's like a pop-up. It's like a temporary thing or whatever that would use that used to happen every year so. In San Francisco, I can't remember. I can't remember the specific details, but the core of it was that people would buy tickets uh, to go to a bar and drink about around a bunch of rats that were loose, you know. And I, <laughs> I, th- I think one of the uh one of the photos too might have shown like a rat, you know near like a cocktail glass like it the imagery for it was just like are you wow. kidding me it was pretty gross and and
2: you paid fifty dollars fifty head that's what to it was into rat bar.
0: fifty bucks per person to drink around a bunch of rats and uh and per- I can do that for free in New York City. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I don't have to pay please. yeah oh my god and so yeah that definitely that made Soleil's skin crawl for sure definitely made my skin crawl as well I was also just obsessed with the idea that, you know, this was a thing that would return and people were down for it, right? Like that's, that's the wild part about it is that there were people who were like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm into this. I'm, I'm getting the $50 ticket. And uh, I think, you know, writing about it, then us talking about it, then us, you know, kind of being like this is this is ridiculous probably drove business to them. So I'm sure it will <laughs> return at some point.
1: Wow. Um, well, I <laughs> I do appreciate you, Justin, also just saying, like, what was, like, really actually burning you up in the moment. So n- oh, definitely yeah. Um, yeah. glad to go down that path. Also glad to know about Rappar. And, like, I'm not going to be able to forget that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I will
1: be Googling that and wondering why is it – why yeah, why is it that a lot of businesses uh, – will not be returning, that we would really like to be returning, and, and yet Rat Bar lives on.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like rats after, you know, yeah. you drop a nuke, they're still around. That and the cockroaches. Exactly. Yes. Yeah.
0: Can you, right. can you imagine buying, like, paying 50 bucks to go to this, oh, wait, never mind. You don't have to wear masks anymore. Ugh. I was about to say, like, just the idea of drinking next to a rat while also having to put on a mask at some point just sounds like <laughs> something. <laughs> end-of-the-world-type <laughs> horror movie scenario it just sounds disgusting.
2: You can only take off your mask if you're drinking a cocktail or kissing a
0: rat. You have to bed. kiss the rats. <laughs> How did I know you were going to say kissing the rat? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like this might be the best, uh, like the most appropriate microcosm of a Extra Spicy podcast. The last, like, five to seven minutes of you know, talking about like mm-hmm. the systemic problems in the restaurant industry and then a couple of minutes later being like, Hey, so what what about that rat bar? You remember that? <laughs> <laughs> you wanna kiss a rat? Yeah,
2: you wanna kiss a rat <laughs> on the face.
1: Thanks for listening and my thanks to Soleil Ho and Justin Phillips, the hosts of the podcast Extra Spicy. Our show is put together by Coral Lee with support from Emily Hanham. If you have a Genius Recipe to share, maybe from your favorite restaurant, I would always love to hear from you at at geniusfood 52com And if you like the Genius Recipe tapes, which is mostly rat-free, do take a sec to rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe if you haven't already. All of it helps. Talk to you soon.